Welcome to the Network Break. It's still our episode 331. Today's virtual donuts are on hold because Drew is on leave and uh, there's no virtual donuts to hand out. Very sorry, but I brought along a special guest, Yona Till Johnson from Nemerdi's Research. Yona, welcome to the Network Break. Thanks, Greg. Happy uh, to be here. Thank you for standing in for Drew. I hopefully that chair fits you in the virtual office of the network break. Let's get into the show. This week's show is sponsored by Cables and Kits. They're an experts in awesome. Get your IT needs and Cisco related products at cablesandkits.com. And if you mention packet pushes, they'll send you a free Cat8 cable and some free loot to go with it. And on the end of today's show, we've got a sponsored TechBite conversation with VMware. We're actually talking about the network modeling features inside of VMware's vRealize Network Insight product. This is the product that uses formal verification to create real-time network models, extract the state from the network, feed it into a model, which allows engineers to test the changes in software before they're made, and then to ensure that the change is made and meet their intent after it's made. And we were talking to Brighton Godfrey, and you'll know from listening to the show that I'm a big fan of formal verification, which is what this is, and this is one of those products. And of course, finally, if you like the network break, check out our other podcasts. We've got lots of other great podcasts in the network, Day to Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, and Full Stack Journey. Find them at packetpushes.net and you'll find them in your favorite podcatcher. If you just type in Packet Pushes, it'll give you a list of all the ones we've got. Let's get into the show. Sadly, this week is a bumper crop of follow-up. Uh, thanks to all the people who did send us their FU over at packetpushes.net slash FU. They left their follow-up and apparently I had a bumper crop last week of mistakes. Let's start off with the first one. Uh, I mentioned last week that DPDK was not suitable for ARM. And it turns out that ARM is actually one of the key contributors to the DPDK project. I went back and had a listen. And what I actually said was, I think it only works for Intel. And now we know it actually works for a wide variety of uh, CPU architectures. It actually says on the homepage, DPDK is the data plane development kit that consists of libraries to accelerate packet processing workloads running on a wide variety of CPU architectures. So bad news for me. Thanks very much to the person who sent that in, who is actually one of the members of the DPDK technical board. <laughs> Give you a virtual wave. Thanks for doing that. And that also reminds me that I need to be spending more time looking into DPDK in the era of data processing units, this idea of smart NICs and full-on computers on the NIC. I wonder where DPDK is going to go in that environment. Uh, second follow-up I had uh, about the VMware SASE solution where I commented on the fact that no other provider just has a thin client solution available for SASE in the market. And he draws uh, my attention to the fact that Palo Alto's SASE solution has a thin client solution. I think there's a, a gap here. What I was talking about was a thin VDI desktop. And so you actually run the desktop in your iPad or on your tablet or on your desktop or laptop, and the compute is actually burning back in the data center I wasn't talking about what this person I think is talking about, which is a thin VPN client. So that is a clientless VPN solution, which is basically where an app runs inside a web browser and then uses the proxy settings to forward it to a third-party proxy server somewhere in the internet. Although now they're not called proxy servers, they're called cloud access security brokers or some other fancy language. And uh, everybody's got uh, clientless VPN solutions. Palo Alto uh, has one, for example. And hopefully that is what you're talking about if I've got that right. If I've not, hit me up on the FU and I'll get back to you. Uh, probably the third and final uh, follow-up for this week, which is my worst foobar, uh, is that I indicated that Mellanox NVIDIA, because NVIDIA did buy Mellanox recently, they don't have 400 gig capable switches. This was absolutely incorrect. And now that I think about it, they are right. Uh, there is the 
NVIDIA Mellanox SN4000 series of switches, which certainly are 400 gig capable. I missed the fact that the Spectrum 3 ASIC is now shipping, and that is the switches that are supporting 400 gig, and the early versions of that switch actually only did 200 gig with future upgrade plans. I didn't miss that. And uh, I think uh, my fault there is that in the transition from Mellanox to NVIDIA left to a gap in the information, I sort of stopped following, and the NVIDIA data sheets are a little bit hard to find and to keep up on. So, uh, yeah. So bad week last week for follow-up. Hopefully um, I'll do a better job this week. Don't forget that you can send us your follow-up by going to packetpushes.net slash FU. Love to hear where we got things wrong so that we can follow up and make it right because it's really quite tough to be across the number of products. All right, Joan, are you ready to get started with the news? Absolutely, and I'll consider the gauntlet thrown on uh, <laughs> minimizing the FUs. So I'm going to start with the world's most boring subject, copper prices. Now, I don't know if you remember back to 2012 when copper prices spiked to a substantial level. They got up to $12,000 a tonne. This week, copper reached $10,000 per tonne due to shortages in the market, largely due to COVID. A lot of the mines were slowed down and the supply chain's been impacted. It's now the highest price in a decade, and the analysts are predicting that the price will continue to rise right the way through to 2023 where they believe that it may actually reach as much as $14,000 a tonne. Now, I remember in 2012, we couldn't even buy copper cabling because there was so much shortage of copper, and the prices that we're being asked to pay actually started to make uh, copper cabling unviable. Do you remember that? I do. Mm. So I think the interesting factor here is that if you've got some copper cabling plans, I mean, if you're just buying a handful of cables, not a big deal. Uh, but if you are, and we've talked about other supply chain woes like ASIC shortages and things, you might want to be thinking carefully about getting bulk orders in early before the price rises come through. The question is, of course, if you're going forward and you're using any form of copper cabling, say inside a building or something, this might be your chance to stop using copper and throw out your copper switches, you know, your your campus switches and start moving to Wi-Fi. That was actually my take, Greg. I yeah. think this is a, a heads up saying if you've still got copper, now is an excellent time to get rid of it. I don't think you'd get rid of it. If you've installed it, you're going to be stuck with it because replacing it's going to get substantially more expensive, like switching to Cat6 in a building. I think you'd just be better off going to Wi-Fi or maybe just sending people home and, and tearing down the building. <laughs> yeah, pu push the cost off onto them. Yeah, like why have a building at all? Why have copper cabling? Why not just send well, it? Well, that's, that's a whole other discussion. I know lots of folks are resisting the notion of permanent work from home, but it is here, it is here to stay. But that's a whole longer conversation. Okay. Uh, one other thing that happened this week was a company called Proofpoint, which I've never heard of, uh, actually went private this week in a $12.3 billion deal. Toma Bravo, one of our favorite uh, uh, punching bags around here on the on the network break, paid a 34% premium to buy Proofpoint out. Now, you brought this one, Jonah. What do you think are the key points about what Proofpoint's doing? I think well, I think the main thing is that most of the most of the read on this is this is a real validation of the cloud security market, and I have to say that's correct. I think Proofpoint's been doing a lot of things right. They've evolved quite, uh, you know, quite a lot from being just email protection to kind of more the full spectrum of cloud protect cloud security protection. I'm still off awfully skeptical of the whole notion of taking companies private. I'm not, you know, I'm not a finance geek. I don't understand what the economics are there, mm. but I think the fact that um, it is a big deal 
and, you know, literally it's a $12.3 billion deal. And the fact that it is squarely in a space that we know is growing dramatically is an indicator. Whether, you know, TB overpaid or underpaid is not, you know, it's above my pay grade to answer. But I think this is a, a message that enterprise organizations really need to rethink their cloud security architectures because things are changing quickly and the market is expanding quickly because there are new problems and new solutions emerging. Yeah, it's, I, I struggle with it a bit. Like this company's only about six years old. It's only been listed on the stock exchange for about six years. It, it grew very fast between 2013 and 2018, but it's been stagnant ever since. So the share price has been bubbling along at $100, $120 in that sort of been range bound for that period. They had a $10 billion market cap before on pretty low revenues. The thing that I'm struggling with is how do they make, how do they get to a 12.3 billion dollar valuation? It just seems a bit boggling to me. Well, Greg, you you actually addressed this yourself as we were doing some research into this. There's a, you know, a slide where you noted that the proof point market opportunity continues to grow. The thing about what's happening in cloud security is there are lots and lots of acronyms that we'll talk about in a little bit, but increasingly you can add acronyms to your portfolio, so to speak. So you begin to add capabilities. So you're not just doing mail protection, but you're actually doing DLP, you're doing SDP, you are grabbing the buzzword du jour and moving folks along towards zero trust. And the big thing is that this is whatever you call the buzzwords, this is a real trend. Companies are looking at this yeah. and saying, in the cloud era, firewalls no longer work. So I need some combination of buzzwords, but real technology behind that buzzword. And that's the proof point strategy is to make sure that they're offering you the full spectrum of the combination of technologies that you need. So proof point turns over a billion dollars a year and they're paying 12.3. So they're paying 12x on gross revenue. That seems pretty rich because this is not a market where Proofpoint is differentiated. There's plenty of other... Uh, that's, uh, that, that's actually not the case. Proofpoint has some mm. really, you know, some really good algorithms internally and some really mm. good technology behind it. That said, I think what tends to happen with these kinds of deals is the private equity firm takes a look and says, do I have solid technology and do do they just need to tell their story better? And the first step in telling the story better, of course, is the acquisition. And then they plow additional money into things like marketing and telling the story. Mm. And I think one of the, you know, not to belabor the point, but one of the big issues with cloud security is that, uh, you know, it's like the, it's the old magic eight ball, you know, future is murky. We're not really sure how all these all these acronyms fit together, but we know that there's got to be a new solution. And I think mm. Proofpoint does have some differentiated technology that can bring them to that, you know, that can get them there. Yeah, but it's not like Palo Alto had to buy Proofpoint to get the skill or Zscaler no. had to buy them or... Well, but I think what you're seeing is that Proofpoint can, is poised to become another Palo Alto, you know, Fortinet, et cetera. They've, they've done a lot yeah, of work over the past the, couple of years. You've got to have an edge. If for this technology to work, you've got to have something that's going to get the traffic into you because otherwise companies like Checkpoint or Palo or Cisco can send the traffic into their own services. Uh, yeah, but but the thing is, it's it's all about becoming the the largest source provider of all the capabilities. So right. anyone with money basically can win in this game, and that's exactly what's happened. They're oh. saying, here's some money, go you know, go augment your solution with all the capabilities you need, and tell the story. I don't believe that the old school network security folks have this market locked up at all. Because remember, Cisco. Cisco, Palo Alto, and the rest of them are trying to make a leap from the old perimeter-based security to cloud security. 
it's not always the case, as we know, that the people that's, that were most successful no, legacy technology that. become most successful future. And Proofpoint's very newness and, you know, starting architecture are, you know, are, are positives. Whether or not they're able to capitalize on it is a whole different story. But it, the, the key point is, since the name of the game right now is to combine a portfolio of, of cloud security technologies together and make them work seamlessly you know, a great place to start is with, you know, 12.3 billion in cap. So my counter argument is that's fine. Proof points in the cloud, but the traffic's got to get there. And the person who controls the edge, such as, you know, uh, HP Silverpeak or Cisco Viptelor or, you know. I, uh, I think the edge is an outmoded concept. Well, you've still got to, he who controls the edge no, with no, no, you actually clients don't. or whatever, you can then divert the traffic. You can sell a bundle. Whereas proof points now not capturing customers. That means you have to own the actual endpoint because remember what we were talking about at the beginning, right? Mm. If if buildings go away, then the edge is the user endpoint. So basically the next generation of cloud security is all about protecting the endpoint to the resource, not about yeah. having some silver peak box at your I, I at your facility. What you're saying, but my point is is that the competitive position is if I can capture the customers at the edge of the network, enterprise IT customers particularly. And yeah, say, yeah, but there's no reason my, to prove point my, because that's their, that's their scanning. core. That, mm. that's, the, that's the exact problem you've hit on is yeah. that Cisco and, you know, Cisco and Palo Alto and the rest of them assume there's a box between the facility and the resources and that box no, is... Well, sorry, that they're not just the box though, right? The point is, is that I can now capture the customer with oh, yeah, a box yeah, but, today. But what I'm saying is they're, they're based upon, they're premised upon an old school architecture. The, yeah. the old school architecture is there's a premise and a box, uh, a premises in a box and you capture the traffic there. Yes. New school is it's at the end user devices or possibly actually at the end user, which is where Microsoft is going. Yeah, that's where the puck's going, but I can capture today's customers with a box. Sure, that's yeah. where they're going, but they're they're launching from an old school, whereas Proofpoint's coming in fresh. Doesn't mean they're going to yeah, win. but they then have to switch customers. No, they don't. They actually don't. It's mm. just simply a paradigm shift. You don't, you know, it's like, hey, uh, I don't I do not do horse and buggy anymore. Even mm. horseless buggy is not the answer. The answer is a car. No, I agree with you. I just think that there's a competitive position where if I had a customers who are here before they get to where Proofpoint is, they could go through an SD-WAN or some sort of edge deployment and I could capture those customers and they'll never be Proofpoint customers. You, you, you could, but the problem is people are rethinking their entire corporate networks and now is the perfect time for them to rethink them. Mm. So let's move on to talking about uh, the gossip du jour that's been echoing around the internet this week. There was 175 million IPv4 addresses announced onto the internet by a very small company based out of Florida called Global Resource Systems. Now, there's a whole bunch of backstory here that makes you sort of want to go down a particular direction. Global Resource Systems was an email scanning operation picked up and dumped on about 10 years ago. And suddenly, just in the last day of the Trump administration, just as they were outgoing, that this Florida-based company started to announce 54 million addresses, and then a couple of weeks later, 175 million IPv4 addresses belonging to the Department of Defense. And that looks pretty dire, doesn't it, Jonah? Uh, it absolutely does. In fact, it's the end of the world. Cybersecurity attacks are coming. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. Sorry. Yeah, I'm not joking. Cybersecurity attacks are coming, but it may not be the well, end of the world. Well, that's true. But yeah. Exactly. Uh, so the story here, it turns out, is uh, I've got links to uh, several different articles here, uh, an article from Kentick, from the Washington Post, from Circle ID, from AP News. 
when you basically tuck it apart, apparently it turns out that the it's a Pentagon elite cyber unit calling itself the Defense Digital Service, which reports directly to the Secretary of Defense, no less. Um, the Defense Digital Service bills itself as a SWAT team of nerds. Can you imagine what that looks like? I just want to know what their T-shirts look yeah. like because I want one. I bet they've got one of those cheesy badges that the American government likes so much. <laughs> Probably got a big bird with wings on it for some reason. Anyway, so apparently this is a, a special office. They have special projects. And the, the short version of the long story is they wanted to announce the DOD addresses that they owned as a threat intelligence. They wanted to know if foreign uh, adversaries or if adversaries are scanning those IP addresses looking for DOD and they can take that information to try and fingerprint those people and then identify if any of the other sites have actually been attacked. The fear that suddenly uh, is that somebody in the previous administration might have handed over what was something like a couple of billion dollars worth of IPv4 addresses was not realised and apparently is a viable operation. Yeah, as a matter of fact, the thing to remember is the DOD continues to own these IPv4 addresses, so they're just getting managed by um, by the global resource systems. The gotcha, and the only thing that I would I would highlight is the fact that it seems to be, from the reporting that we've been able to read, it seems to be a no bid situation where it was just G, you know GRS just got tapped on the shoulder and handed mm. a really rich contract. If that's the case, and I stress if because this is speculation, then there's some skullduggery there that needs to get dug out, uh, you know, not to get into politics. In any administration, if you're handing off no bid contracts, that's a big deal. But it really is a big deal from the standpoint of somebody's getting rich who probably shouldn't, not from the standpoint of national security to the U.S. Yeah, I think the key thing is the government retains ownership or seems to be yes. retaining ownership of these IP addresses this company. They claim to yeah. be. They they literally came out, you know, uh, one of the spokesmen for the Defense Department said, yes, we continue to own all these IP addresses. Calm down. <laughs> and so, but, you know, the internet is the Wild West, so it is very easy to start to read into that things that it's not. So, and I do actually believe that this is a good point that, you know, by having this address range and then watching who scans it is probably a viable form of threat intelligence. I would imagine that uh, IT vendors would killed to have access to that threat intelligence information. Well, I don't know. These are IT people. You never know. We can get very violent. You never know. Well, thanks today's sponsor for sponsoring today's show. Cables and Kits has been kind enough to be a sponsor, and these guys really are experts in their awesome. You should check them out and tell them that we sent you. They're a reward-winning IT equipment dealer with a focus on networking products from SFP modules to servers to fiber and to rack hardware. Now, lately, there's been a lot of bars around Cat8 Ethernet. And as part of Cables and Kits' uh, deal with the packet pushers and, and you, the listener, they're going to give away a Cat8 Ethernet cable for anybody who mentions the packet pushers that purchases equipment from them, which is kind of cool because mostly I would put that on my wall and say, that's a Cat8 <laughs> Ethernet cable. I don't think you'd actually use it. Although maybe with the price of copper increasing, you could actually sell it for money. Who knows? Uh, but for those folks out there looking for a one-off wall mount rack replacement or a full-blown data center outfit, Cables and Kits can help your team. That's cablesandkits.com. And if you do go and talk to them and uh, buy something, tell them that the Packet Pushers sent you because uh, it's great of them to sponsor us for today's show. So let's get back to the news. Dish, which is a US mobile telco, has announced that it's going to be using AWS for its 5G services. Now, Dish Networks is actually, I believe, to be a cable company, mainly focused on selling internet and television over its cable infrastructure. And recently it acquired 
uh, Boost Mobile, which is a mobile telco in the US. And this has uh, transformed it, according to the press release, from a cable TV company into a mobile telco. I can't quite make sense of this. Jonah, have you got something, an angle here? You know, uh, that's actually the reason I brought it up, because I can't quite make sense of it either. And uh, on the one hand, I think it's great. You know, it's a sign that uh, 5G is getting extended out and there's this strategy to get 5G up and running um, very early. And in fact, there's some notions that, you know, disks spectrum is going to spectrum license runs out in 2023 if they don't get this up and running. And they're starting in Las Vegas. On the other hand, what I look at here is, okay, so Dish is partnering with Amazon, and in particular, they're using Amazon Local Zones and Outposts, which I think is a really, really cool edge computing solution. So I guess the notion is that you're you're offering combined edge computing, edge computing and 5G wireless as a service, which tells me very clearly that this is targeted at enterprises. So kind of the big picture here is, you know, aggressive move towards 5G for enterprises backed by Dish and Amazon. That's So that's the big picture and the reason I think it's noteworthy. What I'm still struggling to understand is what the value is in this combination of the, the network provider, in this case Dish, and the edge compute provider, in this case Amazon. It's sort of why are they pulling it all together in one bundle? What's the value proposition mm-hmm. here? I'm sure there is one. And as an enterprise, I'd certainly be interested in something like this because it, it removes some of the headaches of actually moving to, to 5G. But in the long term, in general, there's a reason that network people do networks and compute people do compute and or cloud people do cloud. And I remember back in the day, probably a decade and a half ago now, when AT&T was getting into the cloud space and trying to compete with Amazon and Amazon and Google were getting into the network space and trying to compete with AT&T. And they all decided Mm -hmm. back then that it was better for everybody to stick to their respective knitting. So I'm not sure why that would have changed now. But I noticed that other companies are doing something similar with Microsoft. So I just sort of flagged it as Well, the Microsoft angle is different because Microsoft Azure bought Meta somebody. Yeah, but they're also switch? partnering with someone and I and I'm sorry I didn't didn't provide that link yeah, on that one. Okay. But, but it's you know, it's, it's that, two data points it's a trend, guys. Yeah. So I mean, Microsoft Azure has MetaSwitch which they acquired. It's not just a plat not product on its platform. So there and that is actually a 5G core, a cloud native 5G core. Uh, largely pitched at private enterprise. So you can actually deploy a private 5G network and the back end. So in the same way that your hosted hosted communication system or your hosted collaboration system is actually hosted in the cloud and you just pick up a handset and you get a dial tone, they're talking about doing it with 5G and having a private 5G solution and the app is cloned. And I think this is a step in that direction, yeah. except Dish is planning to use Open RAN. Mm-hmm. They talk a lot about ORAN. They don't say Open RAN anywhere. But there's a big push in America to use Open RAN. I think the US government behind the scenes is pushing telcos to not buy products from Nokia and Ericsson. They want the US telcos to be independent of the European telcos. They want to see, think that that might generate a a local 5G marketplace for that. And Dish has decided that it doesn't want to have to build an automation platform to host the instances for Open RAN on. They're going to leverage AWS. And of course, I think AWS wrote this blog post or wrote this press release, and it emphasizes how awesome AWS is. But I keep coming away from the other side of it going, 
all they're doing is using AWS to run VMs. Yep, that's that's, about it. Th- that's that's exactly that. This and actually, I would do a toss out to the audience and say, if you want to follow up on one of our follow ups and let us know what you think the significance of this is, that would be fantastic. Because although we're supposed to be the people that give you that context, I think this is something that you know the final word has yet to be said on it. So it's it's definitely something to pay attention to. I'm erring on the side that Dish is financially strapped, and by leaning into AWS and renting, you know, paying leasing their their infrastructure, they're hoping they'll make money before they go broke. Yeah, you could be correct. You could be correct. (laughs) That's generally my belief about most of these big announcements on AWS. Uh, Another item that we're talking about is a company called AppGate, an SDP, that's a software-defined perimeter company, introduced a clientless zero trust access to its network access platform. Uh, I didn't think this was big news, mainly because I think clientless remote access is a bit like armpits. Just about everybody has one. Is there an angle I'm missing? Yeah, there is. Um, The big thing about SDP that's important to understand is every other flavor of remote access is essentially some version of VPN tunnels. You set up a tunnel and then you do stuff within the tunnel and it's as if you had a physical connection to wherever you were going, but it's just a, a virtual security tunnel. Um, SDP Mm -hmm. actually allows you to set up an infinite number of tunnels, each one to its individual application, and it is policy-based. So it basically says if Jana wants to log into a bunch of resources that happen to be a mix in the cloud and on-premise, I don't even see and can't route packets to the resources that I'm not allowed to see by policy. That's actually a very big deal, and it's changed a lot of the way people do remote access. The problem is, of course, you know, having... Having to install a client on your device makes it that much more unwieldy and enterprises are justifiably reluctant to overload their user devices with lots of clients. The other piece is clientless now enables things like IoT, so you don't devi- you know yeah. devices that can't have a client. SDP is unlike some of the other buzzwords, you know, SASE, which was created by a marketing company, is actually created by a technology consortium, which is the Cloud Security Alliance, CSA. Uh, and it is a real architecture with a with a lot of thought into how this is going to evolve in the future. So I really believe in the whole concept of SDP okay. enabled n- networking. I can't, I can't see this right because I I can do a lot of this today in a web browser. I can create a proxy.pec file and just in the proxy.pec define what traffic gets sent off to my cloud broker. So. And there's plenty of companies in this space, Palo Alto, Fortinet. Those guys are all, but Greg, those guys are all in the SASE model. The idea here is that you actually don't even see the, you know, you can't send traffic through the ports. For example, at a very simple level, one of the things that SDP allows you to do is if I am a tech support person for, say, Mm. Salesforce, and I've got a user that, that needs tech support, you can set things up so that tech support comes in as a privileged user on Salesforce for exactly the time that the trouble ticket is open, and as soon as the trouble ticket is closed, that yep. that is revoked. No, I get that. Yeah, no, this is this feature, as far as I can tell, already exists in a half a dozen other companies. Yes, you but but, but, the, but the half a dozen setting. other companies with uh, legacy architecture. The new architecture is the important thing. Now you've got a new architecture uh, that's got parity. Well, it's the multiple tunnels. You, you you're still thinking in terms of an old school single tunnel, lots of lots of right, applications, okay. and you have to manually. But then it's not clientless because you're relying on unless you're just tunneling over HTTPS. Uh, no, you're tunneling over, over absolutely everything. It it is in fact clientless. That's the thing that's actually quite yeah. interesting about it. So in which case you just it's only in the browser then. Uh, no, it's not only in the browser. That's kind of the key point. Right. Okay. 
I guess there might be something in there. Maybe we yeah, need to no, get a Yeah, no, there, there really is. I think you need to, to read up on SDP because SDP... Well, if they are, the marketing doesn't tell that story. No, that's absolutely the case. Uh, that uh, <laughs> SDP marketing is possibly the worst marketing in the history of tech marketing. You got a good point. All right, well, moving on with pointless security discussions, uh, SolarWinds, uh, they announced their Q1 results for 2021 uh, and absolutely blew it out of the water. Sales are up 25%, revenues up 23%, deferred revenue, which is your subscription and your maintenance fees, is up 25%. Uh, they absolutely made a whole lot of money, hereby proving my constantly and oft-repeated thesis security doesn't matter because SolarWinds is making more money after the breach, the massive security breach. Uh, than it ever was before. Yeah, I got I got nothing to say here, Greg. That makes no sense to me. How about if I blow up I ninety five and you know make a fun? <laughs> I don't I, I don't get it. I, it's like I don't get it. Right? I, this is like this makes no sense. I guess everybody's decided that it couldn't possibly be their fault, so never mind. I mean, honestly, like their billings were up twenty seven percent to eight hundred and fifty million. That is more than they were making before the breach. So the net result here is that the breach that happened to SolarWinds has actually been excellent for business. The only the only thing I can think of is a lot of people heard about them and went, they must be a good company if they were important enough to get hacked. I don't know. I think it was a bit more of a spectrum. You know, some people were using, had the product, but hadn't yeah. bothered with it. And they suddenly had to upgrade to get it, you know, but they, mm-hmm. didn't, they didn't just turn it off. They actually upgraded or something. Who knows? Uh, in my next piece of news, uh, Lynx, which is the London Internet Exchange, has recently achieved its financial services supplier accreditation. Now, uh, in there's a massive thing about internet exchange points in different parts of the world. In America, most of the internet exchange uh, points are for profit, and they're operated by companies who try and extract charge people the most amount of money to connect to their exchange points. And the only thing keeping them in, keeping the prices down is the uh, competitive nature of the business that other people can enter it. So they have to be around about the same price. IXPs in Europe were actually set up as non-profits, and uh, the Links is one of those. And I don't understand why a nonprofit would want to have a financial services supplier accreditation because the point of an IXP was to offer the minimum price, the lowest cost-only price for connecting network together um, and to keep it down to the bare minimum. And if a company or an organization like a nonprofit applies for this sort of thing, it feels a bit nonprofity. Does it make sense? It, it does. And it's also suspicious that it's the financial services supplier because, you know, Typically, folks that go after financial services are not are doing it for profit. Which makes me think that nonprofit internet exchange points are looking for ways to pay themselves more money. Uh, we've seen lots of problems here in the UK with the DNS registry, the Nominet, where a bunch of uh, individuals have taken over the board and the senior executive roles and have been very generously paying themselves a substantial sum for their uh, unique and valuable expertise. Uh, and I do wonder if this is also happening in the links. Um, there would be reason to suspect that when a nonprofit fundamentally a- achieves a way to charge more money. Seems a bit odd. Anyway, uh, on to our next piece of news in space networking, one of our favorite topics here. SpaceX got a bunch of LEO approvals. That's low Earth orbit. They went back to the FCC and asked for approval to lower the orbital orbits of its Starlink sat- satellites. Now, this is... Uh, Most of its existing satellites are orbiting in LEO at 550 kilometers, but they only had a license to put a certain number of them at that height. And then there was meant to be a second layer at a higher orbit, which was then they were going to turn them into an ECMP fabric. That is, the first ones would then route up to the second layer, and that would provide a low-latency, high-capacity ECMP-style satellite fabric. 
what Starlink has now decided to do is to get the FCC to approve a proposal to get all of those satellites down on the ground and go for a high-density setup. It would be my logic. What do you think? I, I do. And I think actually the bigger story behind this from the standpoint of listeners is that this is part of a move towards taking next generation corporate networks, uh, wireless, including satellite. It turns out, fun fun aside, it turns out that for certain geographies, you actually have lower latency going lower the Earth orbit than you do if you actually went on fiber cable, depending on the routes, because the, mm. the cable has limited geographical routes. You have to go where the cable is. The, the packets have to go where the cable is. And actually, the lower you get, the lower the latency is, the higher the performance is, and the more viable a corporate network based on satellite or in, in whole or in part is. And when I say in whole or in part, one of the sort of cornerstones here is what we talked about a bit earlier, which is having... SD-WAN located at any place you've got a facility, so that way you can shift your traffic, you know, however yeah. you need to from whatever wired form you have to any kind of wireless. In fact, you could you could have some combination of 5G, Leo, and wired connectivity and put the traffic wherever it needs to be. Yeah, I'm a little concerned that these LEOs might actually cause a, a halt in investment in rolling out fiber optic cabling in some countries. That is a concern. I, I think that's a very legit concern because if you look mm -hmm. at what's going on in Africa, um, basically cabling never really took place. Everything mm -hmm. is wired, you know, unless it absolutely has to be wire wired. Or sorry, everything is wireless and unless it absolutely has to be wired. And that's just, you know, the leapfrogging technology. So mm -hmm. I think it, it will slow down. And certainly, certainly in some countries, the less developed, I, I guess you're not supposed to say that anymore, but the less developed mm -hmm. countries will probably get a lot more wireless and LEO. <laughs> And the interesting thing here is that the speed of light in fiber mm -hmm. optic is about, and I'm trying to remember the exact number, I think it's about 0.6, it might be less, of the speed of light. It's actually and, about 0.8, um, which I remember from my physics days, because I had to look it up once, I lost yeah. a bet with a guy from Cisco on that. Um, so, you know, there is a, yeah. you know, there is an inherent advantage to free space. I did some research a while back and the speed of light, the actual propagation through fiber optic is, is quite it's, slow. Whereas it's actually when you no. Send it, 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 up to it, it space, is. There's no medium. Like you've only got the atmosphere, and then once it's orbiting around the Earth between the satellites, it's actually yeah, yeah. very close to one, right? Yeah. No, I actually did. It is very close to one. I actually did free space laser coding techniques in, as okay. a research project. So there's something I know a little bit about. There, there is. It depends on actually the medium, but it is around. I want to say it's around 0.8. Somebody's going to correct yeah. us for sure. But <laughs> you know, so it's definitely a fraction of the total speed of light. So Essentially, the packets do go faster in wireless. It's just uh, you need to keep the path as short as possible. Yeah, they go faster in space yes. as opposed to fiber optic. Was the in sort fact, of we all do. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Uh, so the other thing that I'm a bit concerned about here is that Starlink is moving first here. They're actually got a very quick, they're moving very rapidly, and they may be able to turn that into a monopoly in classic Silicon Valley style if you can be have of what they call a they like to talk about entrepreneurial spirit and first mover advantage, which is code for let's build a monopoly by getting all of the, capturing all the regulatory approvals. And it may be that Starlink is actually going to hand them a monopoly uh, in space by them locking up all of the best uh, satellite slots in orbitals. And I noticed that we're starting to see some of the other governments around the world object to the fact that the US government is getting to give licenses to US companies for the premium satellite positions and that other countries are being locked out. So we may actually see some Barneys in, at the political sphere. Days of uh, networking being ignored by governments is starting to fade as we see different things. You think that's viable? 
I think that you're absolutely right. And in fact, um, just a side note, not to get too political, but capitalism ultimately always devolves into monopoly because that's the way you win. So, yeah, I think that's a very legitimate fear. And it's especially good when you can get the government to give you a monopoly. Oh, yeah. You, at first you get the monopoly and then you get them to seal it in and you're done and then you retire. <laughs> Jonah, thanks very much for joining us today. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Where can people find out more about you online? Best places to hit me up on LinkedIn. I like to work with, you know, personal connections with people. I have no interest in random eyeballs. So hit me up on LinkedIn. We'll make friends. And uh, anything you want to know about me and my company, Nemertes, I will be happy to tell you. Thanks so much to Jonah for joining us today and her company, Nemertes Research. Go and look for it online. That's M-N-E-M-E-R-T-E-S. Uh, and don't forget to stand by for our Tech Byte with VMware and our conversation about network modeling with VMware's vRealize Network Insights. It's coming right up. Welcome to Tech Bytes from the Packet Pushers, a short, sharp discussion on network technology. Network modeling has be quickly become a mainstream feature of intent-based networking, largely because it's a requirement for the software architecture. It's not really a feature, though it's often pitched as one. And model is how you take a copy of the network loaded into software so that you can look at what the network's doing. But the value of a model is how you actually use it to do something useful. And formal verification is a branch of computer science that mathematically tests conditions in a system. And when it's applied to networking, you can use formal verifications to check a model for end-to-end -end connectivity and verify that your business intent is actually being followed. So you express your business intent, you use formal verification to test the model to make sure that the business intent is being met. That is the subject of today's show. And it's kind of nifty, right? So today we have Brighton Godfrey and Sandeep Shah on the podcast. So uh, Sandeep, let's start off with a quick summary of VMware's vRealized Network Insight and how the assurance of verification that we talked about, that formal verification on the model, ties into the vRealized Network Insight product. Uh, vRealized Network Insight is a network monitoring and troubleshooting tool. It is. It, it has both end-to-end real-time application monitoring, as well as it can perform modeling using formal verification technologies. The solution covers all the infrastructure from branch to a data center to cloud. Uh, it includes VMware cloud as well as public cloud. It also uh, uh, supports very broad and deeper VMware and non-VMware infrastructure products including routers, switches, firewall, load balancers, uh, VMware Cloud, and native cloud. So this is actually quite a rounded product, right? VWorldize Network Intersight is kind of a bit of a, a hidden jewel inside of VMware. So much going on in network VMware's portfolio, sometimes you lose track of this. But it actually does monitoring, but it also does monitoring of devices in the network, like load balancers and firewalls. And it can yes. do them in the cloud. It can do them on the VM, on a private cloud, on a public cloud. It can do routers and switches, and it can do all of the VMware stuff as well. This is not just a VMware product. Exactly, exactly. It's just it. It is uh, so. The, from day one, it was built with like both VMware and non-VMware products in mind. Yes. Yeah. How are you getting data from products that aren't VMware? Are you doing some kind of pulling logs or getting streams? Yeah. Yeah. So we we use APIs. Uh, to get the configuration and the runtime state. We also, for the older legacy products, which do not have well-defined APIs, we SSH to the boxes and mm -hmm. do some uh, CLI scraping. We get streaming telemetry from these boxes, uh, metrics, flows, uh, SNMP. 
So various feeds that we get, and these feeds are then kind of, we feed it to our uh, analytics platform. Our backend is basically a big data analytics platform to do uh, the network troubleshooting and monitoring. And is this backend, is that something I would host on-premise? Is it in the cloud? Do I have the option? You have, you have an option to host it on-prem as well as on the SaaS. So we have customers, several uh, like thousands of customers on-prem and several bunch of customers also using SaaS version of our product. And, and the part of the, the value of vRealize Network Insight is that you can actually see what's happening in the network, obviously. But this idea of assurance and verification is I can actually define my business intent. So I guess the, the, the second question that you want to, that you get asked every time you talk about this is how does insurance and verifications work with business intent? Let's start with why you would want to do something like this. You have a large network, there's virtual infrastructure, there's physical devices. You have one or maybe several multiple public cloud deployments. You have hundreds, maybe even thousands of applications um, in the enterprise. And so it's difficult to get everything to work together correctly. And then as things change over time, it's even harder to be sure that what you want to happen is still happening all the time. So the way we address this in Network Insight is with the assurance and verification capability. And the basic idea is to mathematically analyze the network so you can be confident the right thing is going to happen. Or if there is a problem, then, you know, you can see what the, uh, the root cause of that problem is. So where this comes from is uh, an area of computer science called formal verification. Um, so that technology uh, the idea of it is to take a complex system and mathematically determine if it's meeting some stated, precisely stated goal. So, for example, formal verification has been used in designing microprocessors or finding mm. bugs in software. Or if you're NASA, you're flying a rover to Mars, you want to be sure that your flight software works, then analyze it with formal verification. So that's uh, NASA's actually been a leader in that space as well. I guess the thing to take away here is if you're thinking of formal verification and you're looking at how do you verify that the system is delivering business intent? Like we talk a lot about intent-based networking. And I think the assurance that I take away or the comfort I take away from these verification software, like like the vRealize Network Insight thing, is that I can do the configuration here in the left and verify it with the right hand. And then the processes are integrated, but separate. I can actually validate and know that this configuration is going to do what it's going, what I wanted it to do or what I thought it was going to do. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's really about having confidence, especially as the network changes over time. So that's what I wanted to dig into because you know, lots of uh, network folks struggle with sort of building these static maps or models or spreadsheets of the network and mm -hmm. its configuration. But of course, things are changing all the time. So how does this um, insight portion ensure that I've got the most up-to-date view of how my network's actually configured? So what the software does is uh, it first collects these feeds of information like uh, Sandeep mentioned. For assurance and verification, the state that comes in is um, it, it's not using network flow. It's not using NetFlow or IPFIX. It's looking at the state of devices and um, periodically getting uh, snapshots of routing tables, forwarding tables, access control lists, and so on. And okay. that happens continuously um, at a certain period so that you have uh, an up-to-date uh, view of the state of the network at all times. And then with that, once that data is ingested, uh, what the system does is to build a model 
of what the network functionally does across all devices, um, what it could do for all possible traffic that could arrive. And then it gives you this view of the network, including the visualization, and you can search interactively uh, for paths and uh, then verify business intent. So that verification happens once you um, define the intent or use the, uh, the system defined intent, it's happening continuously based on the continuous state that's pulled off the network. Okay. So when we're talking about intent, you're meaning like if I've made a change to a firewall rule or an ACL, I want to make sure the traffic I want to get from point A to point B can still get there. And that I'm not opening holes. I didn't mean to open. Yeah. That's a great example. Examples of intents would be, you want to know that you have reachability from point A to point B. You want to know that you have segmentation between two parts of the network. Um, you want to know that maybe you have uh, consistent configurations in certain devices. So what you're saying there is you're actually saying first test might be, can I get connectivity between these two endpoints or this group of endpoints and this group of endpoints? Because that's what you intend. But then there's a, a negative intent. I just made that word up. I hope it's right. Uh, which is, I've got a micro segment. I don't want anything else to access those groups of nodes or those groups of endpoints. And I want to test that nothing can get access. Can I do both of those? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And to add to that, uh, Greg, we also have system defined intents, correct? Where if you think something like, say, for example, there's a routing loop yeah. in a network. Then we define, we automatically, uh, or if there is a, a like a um, uh, port level mismatch in the configuration hmm. or um, MTU mismatch or your routing configuration is not correct. So if your HSRP route is not same as the SCP and so on. So we kind of figure out the system defined intents without you have, having to tell us uh, this is based on the networking best practices. And then you can also have your own custom, as you mentioned, reachability and segmentation intents. So you've got these sort of almost automated guardrails coming out of the box already with, with this product. Yes, yes. And the rest of the product, the whole vRealize Network Insight has all of the visibility tools that you need. So if you want to then, if you go on and, and use that, but we're talking about the, the assurance and the verification parts of it today. So one of the things that I've seen announced in the latest flow notes is that you're now using flow monitoring. Right, and I don't quite understand how flow monitoring would add something to the model, like in the model, you talked about how you already go out and collect all the data from the device. You get the the MAC tables, the uh, the routing tables. You get the show commands to build up a, a you know, to build up an image of what is actually running in the network. Not a model of the, but you know, model of what's actually running. How does flow monitoring supplement that? So maybe I can uh, I can answer that with uh, some examples of customer uses to illustrate the difference of when you would use one or the other and how they come together. So. Uh, one customer used a reachability intent, uh, and this is intent verification based on state of the network. And uh, through that, they found that there was a certain pair of routers in their data center that uh, where they didn't have failover paths configured correctly. And that could have become a potentially serious outage in the future if uh, one of the devices had failed. So in that case, that's something that you couldn't have seen from current traffic flow because the current traffic flow was fine. Right. Hmm. So it was a question of state and configuration rather than current traffic flow. So that's an example where you, you need to see the state of the network and understand it comprehensively and verify it. Now, to take another example, uh, we have a customer that's an enterprise in the financial industry 
And so it's an integrated team. They have engineering operations, architects for the network. Um, They deal with virtual and physical infrastructure. They deal with a a lot of application owners uh, in the company. So they actually use Network Insight in multiple ways. And one of these ways is to support live incidents. So in one case, there was an outage affecting several of the services. And in a matter of a few minutes, they were able to use the flow uh, analysis within Network Insight to find unusual high rate flows. And then they traced them back to the root cause, which was um, uh, an, an application that uh, had introduced a code change that was causing a bug and, and uh, yeah, uh, parts in the net- yeah, it's not the network's fault. Yep. But it took a you got the usual there. story, yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. the app for developer be going, oh, I didn't change anything. You know, we just deployed right. some new code. <laughs> How could that possibly cause an error? You know, works fine for me. You know, not that I've ever heard that before. That example is one where um, they needed to use the the live view of what's happening now, and then they also use the model of the network uh, independent of the live flow. So uh, they're managing virtual and a physical network. They can trace paths through the network. Um, even if it's not being well, used see, the, by a specific flow. I mean, the, the, I, I, I'm just trying to get to grips with this because it seems to me that the, the trick here is I've got the model of the network so I can map where the, you know, we have these reports of outages in these systems. So I would have been able to use the assurance to say, this is where these flows go. I could use your model and say, hang on, they're all going here. And then I could go straight into the flow analysis and go, hang on, this flow analysis shows me this is happening. Is that how it would work? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, exactly. So, Greg, you can, the the modeling will say what should have happened and flow will tell you what exactly is happening. Okay. And the other use case of flow monitoring are like, if you want to do performance analysis or utilization analysis, capacity and uh, utilization analysis. So over there, you will need like real time flows to figure out how much exactly is the traffic or is my, or is my round trip time right now having a spike? Uh, and so on. So you need flow analysis to do all those kind of performance utilization use cases. Sort of like closing the loop, really, isn't it? Because once you've got a, a model, it's kind of, it gives you a lot of information, but you want to go a step further. It's, it feels like the next step, Brighton. Yeah, um, I think this discussion kind of illustrates how um, you have the live view and then you have the predictive model. Uh, and it, the two of them provide a, a comprehensive picture. Right. You, you can see from the live view what is happening um, and that leverages analytics within Network Insight to get higher level uh, insight from it, especially about applications, I would say. Um, identifying and understanding application behavior and, and uh, performance. And then the verification capability tells you what could happen. So is the state of my network prepared to meet application needs and architectural best practices? So you get that what is happening and what could happen together. So we're seeing intent-based networking sort of start to come into its own uh, in the industry. How do you anticipate intent, intent-based networking changing over time or evolving? I'd say two words come to mind, applications and cloud. So first, regarding applications, there's a lot of talk about intent-based networking. What I find actually one of the most important questions is where does the intent come from? And... Ultimately, what's what's driving the network, the purpose of the network is applications. That's why we're here, right? Mm -hmm. To run applications. And so that's why we place such a high importance on understanding applications, automatically understanding applications, not just the physical infrastructure. 
so I think that's a key part of making intent-based networking as relevant and I guess really as actionable as possible uh, in, in the future as the, uh, as the technology evolves. And, um, and you can see those capabilities in Network Insight today. Um, so, Brighton, just one last section here, which is how verification works in the cloud, particularly uh, where you have public cloud or off-premises cloud, as well as on-premises cloud, which obviously is where VMware strength is. How does, how does this all work in those environments? I think that's really a second area that's increasingly important um, and particularly helping customers who are dealing with cloud adoption and movement towards the cloud. Uh, so you need to see across cloud infrastructures, public clouds, on-prem. You need to know what's happening across the stack, mm-hmm. uh, virtual infrastructure, physical infrastructure. So that really goes back to what we were discussing, that yeah. um, overall Network Insight is built to understand multiple kinds of, well, th- of infrastructure. This gets at the point that uh, the public clouds have their own way of doing things and they have their own proprietary ways of networking, right? They use completely different APIs, completely different structures. They don't load balance like other load balances. They don't DNS like other DNS services. And so you can't easily correlate the the functionality between the two, between all of the different systems, unless you're using some third-party thing to try and find commonalities or to do the testing. Yeah, that's, that's right. What we try to do is hide that complexity. We take care of understanding the complexity of devices Mm -hmm. and bringing them into a single model. So you can ask a high level question like, you know, how does traffic flow from A to B? And that's actually a complex question if it's going across, you know, hundreds of devices, potentially multiple different flavors of infrastructure and cloud. And and multiple overlays and then multiple underlays. You could be on a data fabric across an internet connection across yeah. a wide area and network, across an SD-WAN, to a public cloud, to a, you know, all that sort of stuff. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for in today's Tech Bytes. Thanks very much to VMware for sponsoring us and thanks to the VMware and Network Realize Insight team for coming on and thanks to Brighton and Sandeep for speaking. Now, what I want to do is just call out here that you can go and get a free 30-day trial of a SaaS version of this tool and deploy it in your own environment. You just go to vmware.com slash product slash vrealize tech network tech insight. I would just search the free 30-day trial of Network Insight and you'll find it. And you can deploy it and have a good go at it and see how it's going to be working for you. And in a few weeks, we're going to be having a heavy networking podcast where we dive a lot deeper into some of the topics that we just skipped over the top of here and how formal verification and modeling and what does that look like in 2021. So make sure you're standing by and you're subscribed to the heavy networking channel for all of that. There are more links in the show notes associated with this. Uh, lots of blogs, links, and also if you want to follow Brighton or Sandeep in the social medias, those links are there. And as always, you can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts at packetpushes.net. Follow us on the social medias, rate us on your favorite podcatcher. And last but never, ever least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.